I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hello and welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Anne Foster and this is a super special episode. I'm joined today for a chat with author Elizabeth Chadwick, who you may recognize her name if you're a reader of historical fiction, especially historical fiction set. In the medieval period in England and surrounding areas, she's written more than 30 books set in this time period. And we're talking about her latest one, which is set in a time and a place that I've never read. I've never researched before. I've never read about before. It's a book called The King's Jewel. And it's set, it begins in Wales in 1093. So in our conversation, we she explains what was happening in Wales in 1093, because that was not something I knew about before I read this book at all. It's sharing the story of a Welsh princess named Nesta, sometimes called Nest. And the the really interesting and kind of scandalous at times story of what, what all went on in her life. So I hope you enjoy this chat with Elizabeth Chadwick. So I'm joined here today by Elizabeth Chadwick. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you very much. 
I'm really excited to talk to you about your your latest book, The King's Jewel. And part of that is because this book is about a time period I've never read about before, <laughs> a time and a place. Can you explain the setting of this book? Well, it's set in partly in Wales and partly in, in England. It's set in the late 11th over to the early 12th century, which is 1093, going up to um, the 1110s, 1115. And it's the story of uh, a Welsh princess uh, from from an area of lower end of Wales, South Wales, who after her father was killed, um, is abducted, or should I say taken hostage, taken prisoner by the Normans who were uh, invading. They didn't invaded uh, England in 1066 and were expanding ever westwards. And um, as part of their expansion, they take they were taking over parts of Wales. Nesta uh, was and her family were part of that became part of that hostile takeover, and she was taken prisoner and taken to England, um, where she became the unwilling concubine of the future King Henry I, um, who was known in his lifetime to have fathered more than 20 illegitimate children on various different women. <laughs> so it's Nesta's story and um, and how she, how she deals with her life and when she's sold in marriage to uh, another Norman man, how she, how she goes about making a life and coming to terms with still being Welsh and yet being this uh, unwilling Norman concubine and bride. Can you remind everyone, because I know there are people listening from from the US and other places who might need a, a refresher on on who the Normans were, what that what that situation was. The Normans were well basically Nordic people, Viking types, I suppose, is, is an, an easy popular way of saying it, who'd settled in northern France by conquest, being given land in the north of France called Normandy. And gradually they began looking, looking to expand. And England was just across, 26 miles across the English Channel. And the Normans under William the Conqueror, who who um, re- listeners might have might have heard of William the Conqueror, came across the Channel and took over the English nation, replaced the Anglo-Saxon hierarchy with a Norman one. So the language changed from at the top. The language at the top changed from English to French. And then William the Conqueror rewarded his followers with land, and they were always land hungry. Um, so they kept pushing onto other boundaries. So they looked to Scotland. They looked to Wales. Uh, eventually, they even looked across to Ireland to bring their conquest over there. The Normans well, were, were very successful soldiers, very warlike, and they also took over other parts of Europe, including Sicily. Um, so they moved into Italy as well. So, so they were uh, sort of a proactive military nation. And then the king at the start of this book is William Rufus, right? Yes, that's right. Yes, he was the son, eldest son of William the Conqueror. He didn't have any children, but his his younger brother, very ambitious, Henry, um, who was the youngest of the William the Conqueror's children, was at court with him and uh, had an eye to the main chance. Another brother called Robert was away on crusade. And while Robert was away on crusade, um, young Henry was making hay and a bid for the throne, if you like. Um, William Rufus didn't have any children. He was very possibly, but though we cannot, we can't, there's no actual proof, but um, he, he may have been homosexual, but we don't know for certain. But certainly he, he didn't marry and and the next heir to the throne would either have been young Henry or brother Robert, who was um, 
out of operations at the time elsewhere. And so tell me more about Nesta and how how did you first come upon the story of this Welsh princess? I guess because uh, it comes back to actually Pembroke Castle. And I have written later medieval things about um, um, William Marshall, a man called William Marshall, who was Lord of Pembroke, and also Richard de Clare, the same. Pembroke's in South Wales. And I became interested in the sort of the, the origins of um, what was going on in uh, in that area. And quite often Princess Nest or Nesta, she has both names, uh, kept coming into it and how she had married um, a Norman warlord and founded a, this, a rich dynasty down in the area of South Wales that had been her home. And so she comes into the history, generally speaking, if you actually research that area and that period. So she kept coming up on my radar as well. Her children um, with, with Gerald, her first husband, she had at least three husbands, but her first husband, Gerald, who was her longest lasting one, then uh, the Fitzgerald Kennedys are one of their you know, descendants, that, that particular branch. So they had an illustrious um, lot of, of descendants later on. And another thing was also that her grandson, who was called, also called Gerald after his grandfather, Gerald of Wales, his books are still in print now. He was a bit of a gossipy, I suppose you'd call him a tabloid journalist these days. <laughs> he made up all sorts of interesting, didn't make up, he told all sorts of interesting stories. And they are still, you can still get hold of them today in translation. So I knew about him and I love to holiday in that part of the world. It's beautiful in Pembrokeshire, absolutely beautiful. And so, again, I was steeping myself in the history and the surroundings. Well, and I want to let people know who haven't read your book yet that you you really do write with a real, a very... Um, the sense of place is there. I, I'm not surprised to hear that you have frequently visited the areas you're talking about. It's It very much comes through in the writing. Thank you. Yes, it's. I've been, there, been to Pembroke numerous times. Normally, we hire a holiday cottage for a week. I've done talks at Pembroke Castle, Cardigan Castle, and I've been to Carew, which doesn't look anything like Nestor's, Nest, Nest, where Nestor was born and brought up, but because it's the castle is a lot later now. But the whole general area, and my son was at university in um, Aberystwyth, which isn't that much further up the coast. And so we were always toing and froing to Wales. Um, so it's like I'm not Welsh. I don't have any Welsh blood, but I, I still feel like it's it's a form of home. Well, and that reminds me, too, in the book, what we see happen with Nesta is, I mean, she's taken away from her from her land, from her culture, but she really holds strong to her to her language, to her Welsh roots. I thought, again, I've never, I don't think I've ever read a book about a Welsh person before. So it was it was very interesting to me. And I I, I appreciate how much I learned about the culture through her and through her determination to, you know, give her children Welsh names and to retain this sense of identity. I think that was fascinating actually, because she had a Norman husband who, um, given the way the Normans were, could have named all his children with Norman names. And when you see, when you read the history books these days, you do see like the sons William and Morris have that um, thing going on. But David, you could use both both ways, both Welsh and, and Norman. But the daughter, Angharad, that means beloved, and it's it's a Welsh name. And Gladys, his youngest. So the girls were both had completely Welsh names. Which, um, which I thought was was interesting. I think Gerald himself probably had a had a thing for Wales. 
Well, and that's the sort of clue I would imagine when you're piecing together to try to turn historical snippets into a novel, you're trying to figure out what was this woman's character like? And was that, that's the sort of hint that maybe told you her Welsh heritage remained important, just looking at the names of the children. I think so. I think, I think absolutely. You you do get, get that sense of it. And the fact as well um, that Gerald accepted her brother into his, she had a brother called Griffith who went into exile in Ireland as a little boy when she was first captured. But then he returned and he was, you know, allowed to like, you know, he was sat around the family table and they helped him when they could. And this is with completely with Gerald's permission. So you see here that, um, that Nesta must have had some influence over Gerald and Gerald what must have had his own input in, into this into this story to be to be letting her brother come and stay with them when their brother was a bit on the you know a bit ambiguous about Normans as well as fellow Welsh the, the Welsh themselves fought among these, each other ferociously. Well, and that's sort of that was what was interesting to me as well about this book that was set in a time and place where, in retrospect, we look back and we know the result of the expansion of England into Wales and things like that. But at that time, anything was possible. Anyone could have captured anybody. So there's a, a, a strong sense of uncertainty, I found. Yes, de- definitely. You never you never know who was, knew who was going to stab you in the back, um, li- literally as well as figuratively, because um, the, the, Welsh, the Welsh Wales was divided into kingdoms or principalities, and the rulers were all struggling for power themselves and would raid each other's lands um, indiscriminately and make uh, them make pacts. So one minute they'd be friends, the next minute they'd be deadly enemies. And you never know, knew which way it was going to turn. Um, literally on a small coin, they, they would change their minds and um, they would capture, take um, cattle, horses, people. They would capture people and then sell them in Ireland on the Dublin slave blocks. And so all this was going on amongst the Welsh themselves. And then you get the Norman element coming in and then everybody. So it's just like one big brawl. And some of the Welsh might think, oh, well, if we ally with the Normans, we'll, you know, we'll get one up on on our our neighbours there. That'll make them weaker, which is what Nestor's father, in fact, did. He allied with William the Conqueror. Until William the Conqueror died, Nestor's father was secure in his lands. It was only when William Rufus came to the throne and saw all these hungry Normans waiting like vultures and said, oh, all right, then go on. You know, that um, Nestor's father then suffered the consequences. I find it also very interesting. And your books, I believe, primarily focus on the stories of women from history. So it was it was really interesting to me also to, to get into this time and place and this warlike history, but from the point of view of a woman who, although she's very strong-minded, um, and she does what she can. She's trapped in so many ways. She's she's not able to be involved because she's just tucked away. I think that's ab- absolutely true. Women were strong, but they had to be strong in 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 other ways. I think a lot of the time, and um, that's that, that quite often meant being quite quite cunning and working out how am I going to do this and 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 uh, how does this work? And so they had they stood in stood in their own light. I think is is one of the things. Um, I do write about men. I like to write from male viewpoint too. I like to like to give a bit of both, because men have their opinions and their mindsets as well. So um, you know, th- there are di- there are different ways that women look at the world and ways that men look at the world. I think, and that's generally speaking, because there's 
lots of overlap. Well, and in this book as well, there's the you get the point of view. It's not all Nesta's story. You sort of expand outward. Um, Gerald, we get to see from his point of view as well. Yes, that's right. And uh, yeah, I was in. I was. I was interested in how a man like Gerald comes to be constructed of this castle and get this this Welsh princess for his wife. What's he done to, done to earn it, if you like? And why does he love Wales? Uh, and what's this person like? And I find usually when I start researching, because when I begin writing a novel, I research enough to need to know to begin writing. But I always ask my main characters, my protagonists, what can you tell me that you haven't told anyone else before? And then they, they come and they tell me, if you like. Um, but at the same time, while I'm while I'm working on that, I'm asking on a scale of one to ten, how likely is this to have happened? And if it's an eight or more, then I'll go with it. I know I'm writing fiction, but I like to have it um, based in reality and to be plausible. And if it's between an eight and a ten, then I'll go with it. And if if I if I think no, that's not really likely, then I'll find a way around. And I think there's always a way around. There's always a way around. You just have to think harder and let your subconscious work harder too. What research, what sources were you able to find to learn about what facts we know about Nesta and her life? Well, there's, there's a, there is a raft of resources. I probably had to go to um, some primary stuff. There's a, a Welsh chronicle, and I'm, I'm ter- my pronunciation of Welsh is terrible. It's um, the Bruti Twisogian, and I'm, any Welsh people listening are probably screaming at me that's completely the wrong pronunciation. But it's um, a chronicle that was written from the, uh, I think, 6th century don't quote me on that, all the way up to the, sort of the 13th century of the doings in Wales. And it's written in Welsh, and I've got a Welsh one side translation into English the other. So that gives you the basics. It's got a few things wrong. Some, sometimes the date lines are a bit dodgy, but the story is there. And there's also, I've got um, a book of Welsh laws from the period, medieval Welsh laws that, t- that tell you what what rules Welsh people lived by, called the triads. and various other Welsh folk tales. It's all the primary source bits and pieces. Uh, And then I go to secondary source academic works. So I found a couple of biographies of Nesta that that I read while going along. And then I go and look at, if anybody got a university thesis out online, get hold of that, and a couple of other textbooks on Wales. So it's all being read as I go along. I mean, I, I read enough to get started and then... While I'm writing that first draft, I am deepening that knowledge more and more until until by the time I get to the fourth or fifth draft, I've got, I might think, oh, that needs altering, oh, that needs altering. But generally speaking, um, I've got a good grounding. And now we're just going to take a break for a word from our sponsors. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. 
or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. So the thing is, I have allergies. My nose gets stuffy. I get sort of sinus congestion, and it just really can sometimes get in the way of doing things I really want to be doing, like recording this podcast, for instance. But you might have noticed that when you're listening to this podcast, you never hear me sounding like a duck or uh, with a runny nose. I'm never wiping my nose or stuff on the microphone. And that's because luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin-D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. So I've been taking Claritin-D for my allergies, and the thing is, when I'm using it, you won't even know that I have allergies. My voice sounds so crystal clear when I'm recording and when you're listening to me right now, but also when I'm not doing podcasts, when I'm doing other life-related things, like just going about my day-to-day life, like sitting on the bus or going to work or whatever, going to the movie theaters. I don't have to worry about like, do I have tissues with me? Do I have a handkerchief? Is this noise bothering everybody? Am I being gross? Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And we're back. So I read your book, obviously. And then I thought, well, what what was the real story? So I just did some very amateur, very quick yeah. sleuthing just to determine. Yeah, I mean, the plot points, like the major things that happen in your book are what Nesta's story really was. And I thought, my goodness, why isn't this story better known? <laughs> <laughs> it's an amazing. I know and there is another another um, lady who's written written about you. Her name escapes me. She's, she's written a set of novels about Nesta. And she does crop up now and again, but no, she's not widely covered. So I, I felt I felt that she she needed her storytelling. Um, I think one of the things that interested me as well as part of her story is because she became a, the mistress or concubine of King Henry the First. I've always seen people go on about, oh, he had twenty children. What a lover he must have been! And I thought that's not that's not true. You know, I, I don't I don't think that that's quite the truth. You know, because a lot of these were quite young girls who were his hostages or were given to him as, as gifts by their families for a bit of prefer, preferential treatment, you know, to the family. So I was interested in exploring it from a point of view of a woman who had been one of his conquests, if you like. So that was just part of the mix of being interested in Esther, you know. No, and that's such an important point as well, I think. I know there's certainly other figures in history where I think they get a similar sort of... Um, favorable yes. reaction saying oh what what a what a lothario this was where you think well <laughs> what, what? <laughs> that's not quite true that's not quite what the situation was yeah absolutely so i wanted to i wanted to set things as i felt right by by nesta and by nesta especially because you know she had she had a lot a lot to go through 
a lot to deal with. One of the things that fascinated me when doing the research was that there, there are two castles involved in it. There's a story in it where um, Nestor basically saved Gerald life, Gerald's life by telling him to hide. I won't go further into it than that. But she, she tells him she, he has to hide from, from an enemy. And this particular scenario is, 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 is quite often, I mean, you can Google it if, if you want. It's quite big. But the castle of Kilgarran, um, up near, uh, near the Welsh port, uh, near, the, near Cardigan, claims that this is where this incident happened. And then if you go down to Carew, they also claim it happened. And it's both in the guidebooks. So then the author's going, right, which, which one? Which one? <laughs> Um, so I had to just choose where to set this scene, and both guide guidebooks tell me that it's it, that it was at their castle, which I, I chose the one that, that seemed the most obvious to me. But it was interesting to see that a bit of competition, even these days, between two um, tourist attractions to have have the scene happen at their, their particular castle. That's so interesting. And that kind of speaks to, because her story, my sense of it, is that there are factual things. We know she lived, we know this was her husband, but it's it's almost to a level of mythology or almost a, a fairy tale, the the story of it. Yeah, there's definitely, it's, it's very hard to find Nesta in the, um, in, 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 uh, in history. You've really got to, got to dig for, dig for the nuggets of it and then, and, and ask questions um, about what happened. How did how did this happen? It's um, she was known as the Helen of Wales, which meant that well. So we so the suggestion is that she was very beautiful, and we know that Gerald was born at Windsor Castle in in England, where his father was um, in charge of the castle. So we know that Gerald um, had, although he was a younger son, would have had excellent training in everything. How he got to Wales and and into the employ of the Montgomerys. Who knows? You know, it, you, those things just aren't told in history. So you just have to find a way that seems plausible and would, would and feel feels right. It's, it is it is very very difficult. Well, and that's what I I really admire about the work you've done in this book is to take what you're describing. You know, is this an eight out of ten plausibility? So for you to be presented with a list of facts and some of them just on paper, you think, well, how on earth is someone, how are you going to turn this into a, a plausible plot twist? How are you going to have your character believably do this situation? So it's, you're just kind of coloring in the spaces between these facts. So I think that, exactly. yeah. That's it. You have to color in the spaces. I mean, there are, there's some, some definite set piece scenes. I mean, the bit, the bit, the, there's a siege early on in the, in the story at Pembroke Castle where Gerald's um, enemy, Owain of Powys was, we know he was present we know that um, Gerald played a trick on him um, to pers- persuade him that the castle was stuffed to the rafters with goodies when it wasn't. So that, that is down in the history books. So you can think, well, I can really get a good siege written out of this, you know. But then there are other bits that you, you think, well, I've, there are just gaps where you have to think, look at the wider history and see what was happening and who was around. And then sometimes you can make deductions. Well, if so-and-so was there and this happened then, then so-and-so must have happened and must have been and it's like like this where these these two castles that claim that this in the um um the escape incident happened there you find one's only four miles from um where the, the enemy lived oh in a powis it was and that he was at a feast there within that timeline 
And then the other other castle is way down south, hundreds, a couple of hundred miles in the middle of Gerald's territory, rather than on the border with Powys. So what's more likely? Which is the eight out of ten of those? Yeah. No. Well, and I wonder, too, when we're looking at something that happened so long ago, for instance, these two these two castles, and who's to say where anything happened? You just explained which is more likely. But, you know, at what point in history did the other castles start saying, oh, actually, that happened here, and that was a way to get people to visit yeah. that? Maybe that happened 500 years ago, so there's still a history to that claim. You know, it's, yeah, it's such a long period of time since this all actually happened. Yeah, I suppose, yes. It's a... Uh... This happens, I think, throughout history. Wherever you go, you hear you hear the myths and the legends, and then you have to really dig underneath to uh, to see what to see what what you can find to see what's more likely. Uh, and sometimes, the, you know, there are definite clues there. Well, and that's where I guess also too, you're saying you looked at some of the the primary sources as well, where if you can find, well, what were people saying as close as possible to when these events happened versus what did somebody write about it? I don't know. For instance, in the 19th century or something like that, you want to find hopefully the most accurate. Yeah, that's right. And and I'm still I mean still finding things now. Just to go off off to another 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 novel at the moment. Um, if I if I may mention another novel I've written, it's um, I, I wrote a trilogy about Eleanor of Aquitaine, um, who's a bit later, not much later, 12th century, um, Queen of England, wife of Henry, wife of Henry II. And it's mentioned, uh, and all her biographers mention it, that this is modern biographers, not not way back, that she had a, had a half-brother called Jocelyn. And I thought, well, if I'm going to put this Jocelyn in a story, I need to find out a bit more about him. So I went to where they, he's supposedly mentioned in this, um, this documentation. It's primary source. It's a thing called a pipe roll, which is like um, a list of um, expenses for the, for the court. And uh, here it was written uh, in the English, tran- or I translated it from, from Latin. I read Latin badly, but I can get an idea. And there it was, Jocelyn, brother of the Queen. And I thought, oh, there he is. And he's been given this land in Petworth in Sussex. Right. And then you find out that actually brother of the Queen doesn't mean Queen Eleanor. It means another queen who lived earlier and that Jocelyn is her half-brother. Oh. But... Historians and biographers haven't picked up on it. So you read a biography of Eleanor Aquitaine, say by well by Alison Weir, and there there she's talking about this 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 person who isn't actually the half brother of Eleanor Aquitaine. And I found that out for myself just by research reading. And I thought, do I put it? So I don't put him in my book because he doesn't belong there. You know, if if I hadn't read read gone and backed myself up, I'd have probably given him lots of scenes in the book. <laughs> Given him shoes he didn't own. Yeah. <laughs> so I like to dig. Like that's such a perfect example. And that's so interesting that one person interprets a fact in a certain way. And then the next several biographies use that person as their source. And then suddenly it becomes accepted truth. Exactly. That's it. And once it's in the mainstream, it's very, very hard to get it out of the mainstream. I find myself on history forums sometimes typing it and thinking, why are you doing this? <laughs> you know, um, because it's such a, such a big wave of uh, once it hits mainstream. Um, but I, I like to feel that I don't get everything right. I don't get everything right, and I would never claim to claim to be that. And I don't say I'm accurate. I just say I try for authenticity, which is a different thing. But I do my best. Well, and I mean, how many 
historical fiction books, you have 30 at this point. Clearly your best is. I think so. I need to count them on my fingers. <laughs> um, it's getting, getting up that way um, since 1990. But I, st- I wrote my first one when I was 15 because I don't, but I'd always told myself stories verbally. And I finally wrote something down when I was 15 and thought, oh, I want to do this for a living. But, you know, when you're 15, you, I needed to grow up, really, to start with. So I got published when I was 31. So it took me 60 years to actually find a publisher. But I was learning my trade. And at the same time, I was becoming more and more interested in what I was writing. Well, and that just brings me to to another question, which would be, so finding a figure like Nesta, I feel, to you as a writer, I would imagine it's such a gift to have a story with so many built in these, I think you call them set pieces, these major events that happen. So I thought when I read the book, I thought, why isn't this story as well known as Elizabeth Woodville? You know, there's just, it's such a good story. So how I would imagine as a historical author, you're never going to run out of new people to discover new stories to write. Oh, absolutely not. No, I usually, if I'm for my next next person, you know, next person I'm going to write about, I'll sort of look up biographies and I'll look at a mention that interests me, you know, and then I will ask, that's when I start asking questions like, who are you? Why should I write about you? What can you tell me? Every time they, I I look a bit further or read a bit further, then that question gets answered and I think, yes, you know, so that's, something speaks to me. Medieval period is my period been doing it since I was I was a teenager I suppose and um, so 1066 on onwards I've gone a bit later recently but that sort of area 1300 you know absolutely fascinates me and I'm I'm quite at home in it and I guess just as sort of a one final question related to what you were just saying you know finding the stories that speak to you do you find in writing about the past are you does it make you see things in modern day differently or do you see connections between the experiences of people in the medieval time and the experiences of people today? I think so. I, I think I think it does tell you that technology changes, but people don't. And technology might just change people slightly, but we're still, still wired to do exactly the same things. And I see exactly the same things going on then. Has happened now, except we're on a, on a global scale with different technology, but it's the, exactly the same behaviours. Um, so to me, nothing changes. I do think writers are, I would call, say, um, a bridge. Um, you build a bridge uh, if you're writing historical fiction between now and then, and then you invite readers to cross your bridge. Not every reader is going to like what they see on the other side or want to cross your bridge, and, uh, and, and some are going to use it use it as their um, their preferred bridge, you don't know which. But that's that's my job, to provide a bridge for people to walk into the past. And I think you did such a lovely job of that in this book. And thank you so much for, for talking to me about your book today. Thank you very much for asking me. It's been lovely. Thank you. So I just want to clarify when Elizabeth mentioned that Nesta is the ancestor of the Fitzgerald Kennedy family, like that means like JFK, like John Fitzgerald Kennedy, like the Kennedys, that dynasty had their roots. I mean, from from Nesta. So which is fascinating to me to see how far back that family dynasty goes, but also just a connection between the story that feels so long ago to a dynasty that's still around today. So again, this book is called The King's Jewel. Elizabeth Chadwick. It should be available anywhere, anywhere you get your books from. 
And if you like that, I mean, Elizabeth has got quite a, a back catalog of other books of, of historical people, men and women, as she explained. And you can also find more out about her. She has a website, just elizabethchadwick.com. And so this show that you're listening to right now is Vulgar History. My name is Ann Foster. And you can keep up with this show. And also, if you're like, what are the... I've been doing more and more of these author conversations, which is so fun for me and so fascinating. And I hope you enjoy learning from people who uh, have done have done the research, hearing them explain how how they put these stories together. I've got a whole list of all of the authors who I've spoken to and who I will be speaking to on this podcast at my bookshop link. And that is the there's a link to that in the show notes of this episode. If you want to just go back through and see all the books that we've talked about on this podcast, they're all there in various lists. And if you want to keep up with this podcast and with me, I'm on Instagram at Vulgar History Pod. I'm on TikTok at Vulgar History. You can reach out to me. Um, there's a form at vulgarhistory.com. Or you can also email me at vulgarhistorypod at gmail.com. I also have a Patreon where if you support this podcast for at least $1 a month, you get early ad-free access to all episodes of this podcast. And if you pledge at least $5 a month, you get bonus episodes as well. So until next time, my friends. Keep your pants on and your tits out. Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Anne Foster and edited by Christina Lumagi. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.